Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Adam Hart about when human evolution collides with the modern world in his new book, Unfit for Purpose. Adam Hart is an entomologist and professor of science communication at the University of Gloucestershire. He is a regular broadcaster for Radio 4, including documentaries such as Inside the Killing Jar, Big Game Theory, Raising Allosaurus, and On the Trail of the American Honeybee. He has also presented Science in Action for the BBC World Service. On television, Adam has co-presented several documentary series, most notably BBC 4's Planet Ant, Life Inside the Colony, BBC 2's Life on Planet Ant, and BBC 2's Hive Alive. Adam is also the author of more than 100 scientific papers and a previous popular science book, The Life of Pooh. And today we're going to be talking about his latest book, which is Unfit for Purpose, When Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World. Adam, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Tell me what the idea behind Unfit for Purpose is, first of all, then. Well, the basic idea is that we are this fabulously adapted animal. Um, we, we often forget that we are animals, but we are this wonderfully adapted animal that, that's done incredibly well. We've, we've achieved effective global domination. And yet, despite all of this, and despite the fact we can go into space and we can envisage subatomic particles and all kinds of other things, we still seem to have a number of, of woes that seem to be very much linked to the modern day world. So um, we have, for example, obesity, stress, um, violence, addiction. We've got problems with fake news and social media and all these kind of things and, and just um, really quite deep rooted problems, for example, the way we digest food and everything. And, and it's it's really an exploration of how some of those modern day woes are actually a sort of conflict, if you like, a sort of mismatch between this evolved animal that we are and this environment that we've made for ourselves. Because, of course, we, we live now in a very um, rapidly changing modern world environment that's got very little in most cases, the sort of environment that we evolved in. So it's really examining those mismatches between our evolutionary heritage, if you like, and the problems of the future or the problems of the current world. And it, it feels like you can see the echoes of evolution in quite a lot of the problems that we have at the moment. Well, let's talk about that in the environment that we evolved in then. At the beginning of the book, there's a chapter long primer on evolution, which I'm, I'm not going to make you repeat, but <laughs> I do want to talk about that. The sort of first point where we become something recognisable as a modern homo sapien. When are we talking about? Well, anatomically modern human sort of homo sapiens are usually thought to have arisen about 300,000 years ago, although every time a new sort of bone or tooth is found, there's all kinds of jiggery-pokery about the dates. But it seems to have arisen, we seem to have sort of got to a consensus now that it's about 300,000 years. But really, when we're talking about the sort of our ability to really radically change our environment and become what we might think of now as being a very much modern human, we're really looking at sort of past about 12,000 years ago when we went through 
what's called the Neolithic Revolution, which is really the, the development of agriculture. That was a massive, massive step in our in our history because suddenly we're released from the sort of vagaries of and rhythms of the seasons and, and suddenly we can start to develop what we would now recognise as civilization. You know, we have large numbers of people gathered together in a particular place. We've got sort of society wide division of labour. You know, we're living no longer in family groups or tribes of, of related families, but we're living in these huge kind of cities and, and now of course we've got cities of, of tens of millions of people and that really all roots back to the fact that we developed agriculture so definitely in the last sort of 10 to 12,000 years where we're kind of seeing the emergence of that very modern human that we that we would recognize now but of course the last 10 or 20 years have seen huge changes again with the with well, the last 30 years perhaps with the sort of digital revolution. Yeah well, I was going to ask about the sort of time period that we're covering here because as I said, the subtitle for the book talks about, you know, when evolution, human evolution collides with the modern world. And, and most of the book is talking about things that are literally in our own, in our lifetimes. But as you just mentioned, you know, there are serious changes happened to sort of humankind since the the introduction of agriculture. And indeed, I want to start with a couple of things that you look at sort of going right back within that sort of period between then and now. That's um, the emergence of lactose tolerance and then latterly gluten intolerance. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a surprising thing. But when we developed agriculture, our health took a bit of a kick, actually. We start seeing in, in the, the sort of bone evidence, we start seeing evidence of deficiencies, for example, because people's diets were much more constrained than they were when they were sort of hunter-gatherers, probably more gatherers than hunters a lot of the time. Um, you know, we were <laughs> probably hunted just as much as we were hunters. But we didn't get initially within agriculture the same sort of nutrients that we had. Um, it, it introduced the idea of teeth decay, for example, and we start seeing evolution in sort of our our jaw and our, and our and our skulls so that had quite a big impact but also what we start seeing of course is the emergence of two big things in our diets which we didn't have before lots and lots of grains and um, dairy once we started keeping animals for meat i guess it wouldn't have been very long before we realized we could milk them and lactose is a really interesting thing the sugar that you find in milk virtually all mammals can't digest once they get past infanthood it is literally baby food and we of course in in europe have this culture where we're very used to the idea of drinking milk and we virtually come to consider that milk is good and that milk calcium bone health kind of link is very very firmly established um, but we are in the minority in the world. Um, about two thirds of the world are, are actually lactose intolerant. They can't digest milk. Their enzyme lactase basically shuts off once they've once they've been weaned and, and they don't produce it anymore. So if they eat raw milk in any form, it can often make them quite ill. So we've got this really interesting evolutionary story about how in certain parts of the world with, with a dairying culture, that kind of dairying culture went hand in hand with the evolution of our enzymes to be able to drink the milk. And then if we can drink the milk, people started keeping more cows and then it became more of an advantage to be able to drink milk and you can see this pattern of of lactase persistence developing through Europe but you can also find out outbreaks of it almost throughout the world where dairying has taken off where you don't find that lactase persistence you also don't tend to find dairying happening and you know that's what you see over in the far east for example in China but actually a lot of those countries now are drink are eating more and more dairy often in the form of cheese which is slightly easier to digest and of course cheese is very delicious and yummy but if you put too much of it on your food then you're starting to take in a lot of calories and we we throw back to another problem of of the modern world which is obesity so that whole kind of story of of the emergence of agriculture and the 
way that we respond to it is actually an evolutionary story. You know, we have evolved in response to a change in our environment, different types of food available that we have ourselves caused. So I guess the difference being is that now we're causing changes in our environment over a far smaller time period than, than we saw that gentle sort of development of agriculture over thousands of years. Um, so we, we've got the capacity now to change our environment very, very rapidly. Yeah, and this brings us to the, the, the so-called obesity epidemic that we see nowadays this is obviously something that's happened to a significant amount of people in the world in the very recent past evolutionarily speaking a blink of an eye that suddenly we have such plenty of food i mean obviously not everybody in the world of course but you know a significant amount of people have such a plenty of food that we never want for for something to eat and you talk about some of the ideas some of the sort of evolutionary theories as to why we might be seeing like a sort of obesity epidemic why we might not be built from an evolutionary perspective for such a sort of a feast one thing is called a thrifty gene hypothesis what's that yeah so the thrifty gene hypothesis is quite it's quite a reassuring sort of hypothesis it's this notion that we are we're basically the the idea is that we're famine adapted and that in order to survive future famine um, we're very very good at laying down fat and so we take in food and if there's even a few few calories extra down it goes as fat and what's happening in the modern world according to this um, hypothesis is that we are forever preparing for a famine that for many of us won't ever come and that's quite nice in a way for for people to sort of cling to isn't it because it's kind of I'm fat because I'm a good metabolic boy scout or girl scout rather than you know any other reason but actually of course first of all um, even if that were true and it doesn't seem to be the case for many populations but if it were true then you still you can't become obese if you're not if you're not surrounded by food so it's still an environmental issue ultimately right you have to you have to have plenty of food to be able to take advantage of that but the other problem is that that when people have looked for these kind of thrifty genes actually um, across the world it's it's been um, a fairly fruitless search but what is interesting is that if you look at obesity and its incidence across the world and you look at measures of economic well-being so in essence a way of measuring the amount of the modern lifestyle that's that's the sort of how it breaks down you do get a very weak relationship coming out out. The more modern, if you like, and the more economically wealthy you are, the, the more likely you are to be obese, although there are some notable exceptions, Japan being one of them. But what you really find is a sort of cluster of countries that are very obese and relatively poor. And they all seem to cluster around the South Pacific Islands. Um, and uh, I think eight of the 10 sort of most obese nations in the world are, are South Pacific Island nations. And when people have looked there using some, some really good sort of genome-wide techniques, what they've found is evidence for thrifty genes and exactly the sorts of genes that you would expect with the same cellular functions that you would expect from that. And you, you can piece together a, a fairly plausible sort of evolutionary scenario where people that have populated those islands have come from, from mainland um, areas, um, sort of Taiwan, it's thought, and then through Indonesia. And in order to get out that far, they have to be um, very, very good at surviving long sea voyages, often with very poor access to food. So it's essentially selecting for people that are able to store food when they can and store fat when they can. So in those nations, it does seem that this thrifty gene sort of hypothesis is holding true, but that doesn't seem to be the case across the world. And I think, I guess that highlights how we are. We are animals. We are just like an animal population where, you know, a species 
we're subdivided into populations with with different sort of characteristics when you when you look at other parts of the world that doesn't hold and one of the sort of counter arguments to that is something called the drifty gene hypothesis which is an interesting hypothesis it's still evolutionary because it's still looking at, at genes and gene frequency changes but with the drifty gene hypothesis the idea is that we have this upper and lower weight limit that's imposed on us genetically and the lower limit stops us from basically starving to death and make sure that we've got enough resources laid down and you know metabolizing in that way that we can not basically die but the upper limit is to do with keeping us lean enough to be able to survive and move and be agile and evade predators quite likely and around about three million years ago predation um, a number of large predators went extinct in eastern africa where we were and also at the same time of course we were starting to develop more socially and then the emergence of anatomically modern humans sort of 300,000 years ago and we start to interact more with other people we start to become more social many people think that being driven by evading the predators that were around we start to develop weapons and fire and all sorts of other things and suddenly that upper weight limit kind of drifts right it doesn't matter anymore it's not under active selection or as active selection as it was and what's happening is that if it's drifting it's drifting upwards and if you're suddenly put in an environment of plenty and you start eating you're going to put on weight and what you can see of course is the difference between different people's metabolisms you know responding to the different kind of drift in those genes so that's the the, the essence of the drifty gene hypothesis i guess it's kind of kind of cool that that process is called genetic drift and you can end up with drifty and thrifty <laughs> which which is a pleasing rhyme um, but they're both, of course, evolutionary explanations. I guess to a certain extent, the jury's out. You know, there's still quite a lot of discussion and debate about these things. But undoubtedly, our ability to be able to lay down fat and the differences we see in different people, you know, there is going to be a genetic component to that. But when it comes down to it, if you're not stuffing food in, you can't put fat on. Right? I mean, that's the basic, the basic biology of the situation. And, and in the modern world, we have an amazing an amazing wealth of very calorie dense food available to us at relatively low cost. I mean, you know, one of the problems with the South Pacific Island nations, for instance, was the the influx of um, certain meat products, um, something called mutton flaps, which are the very fatty kind of fairly low protein parts of the, the carcass that you cut off from around the ribs and the, the, the stomach and um, turkey tails, which are the, I guess, the parson's nose sort of end of the, the, the turkey, which were cut off in America and then sold down there. And, and they became um, very popular. Um, and people ate them and that's that's where much of the blame has been put also um, soft drink availability so if you've got that underlying tendency to be putting on weight and then you're suddenly in an environment of plenty which of course many of us are as you said many of us aren't but but many of us are the inevitable will happen and just sort of staying with the i guess the world of eating for for the moment (laughs) you also talk about sort of long-term changes inside us in terms of our gut bacteria our own sort of biome and how this is sort of linked with the rise of certain autoimmune diseases tell us about that yeah i mean this is really interesting this is something that that developed from uh, the last book i wrote actually which looked at sort of our complex relationship with bacteria and of course quite a big part of that is looking at our our gut microbiome and, and our biota and and almost daily it seems new evidence is coming out linking the bacteria in our digestive system to all kinds of aspects of our health but particularly to inflammation in our immune system and as we learn more and more about it, we, we learn more and more that imbalances in that bacterial community inside our gut can cause all kinds of, of medical issues. 
that was kind of interesting looking at things like asthma for example and allergies but also links to things like Crohn's disease potentially and and other types of um, bowel conditions so yeah looking at those links between it and, and what's really interesting there is that it's not so much our evolution but our evolved relationship with those bacteria and other organisms actually what become known as our old friends um, is the idea that we've evolved with a, a whole load of, of microorganisms out there in the environment our immune systems learned to to recognize friend from foe um, it's part of us essentially you know these bacteria that are in, inside our stomachs and intestines are very very important to us in terms of digesting our food and releasing nutrients and all sorts of other things and and now in the modern world we've upset that balance lots of people sort of talk about the hygiene hypothesis and the idea that we're keeping our houses too clean actually that doesn't really stand up so well um, what does stand up well is that that our lifestyle has changed we don't we don't spend as much time outside. We don't have such large families. We don't have intimate sort of, um, oh, intimate's perhaps the wrong word, very close contact with um, with livestock to an extent that, that we often used to. Uh, we're very much more indoor creatures now than we were. And that seems to be causing sort of knock-on effects to this sort of co-evolved relationship, if you like, with all these microorganisms. And we do start to see more and more, more and more issues that are being seen as, as diseases of the modern world. You know, diseases of affluence is what they're sometimes called. And they seem to reflect that lack of a balance between it. And of course, there's ways that you can restore that balance, including fecal transplants, for example, which um, uh, every bit as pleasant as they sound by the, <laughs> by the sound of it. Um, but, you know, basically trying to recolonize and repopulate your gut. But before we can do that, we have to understand and look at what a healthy gut actually looks like what what is the correct community to have in there and it's really interesting seeing the I did a I did a radio program about this back in I think 2013 2014 and talking to people there who were bacteriologists basically and immunologists and other things and you know I was talking to them as, essentially as an ecologist and what was really interesting was was hearing the sorts of terms they were using that they'd moved from sort of describing these things as, as bacteria almost and now they were talking about gut communities they were talking about exactly the sorts of interactions that you talk about in an ecological scale and, and people now even refer to that sort of area inside us if you like as our environment you know really really sort of bringing out the idea that there is a complex ecosystem inside us and you know we are we are to some extent actually simplifying that ecosystem actually seems to be the case and and when that happens we we lose function just as we see out in the bigger world when we simplify ecosystems in the bigger world we tend to lose species we tend to lose function it's not as rich it doesn't seem to function as well it seems to be exactly the same with our with our gut bacteria as well when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you.
Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Hart, and we're talking about his latest book, Unfit for Purpose, When Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World. And Adam, I want to start us off in the second half talking about stress and how stress has become a killer in the modern world. First of all, there's a, a, a sort of bodily a bodily function and response, the acute stress response more popularly known as the fight or flight response. Yeah, I mean, that's an absolute lifesaver, no doubt about it. It saved my life more than once. It certainly saved me from injury many times. I'm sure it saved you before. Um, And probably every one of our ancestors as far back as we want to go. And actually, we can find a similar type of of response in lots of different organisms as well. So this isn't a human thing. This goes far back, you know, mammals and beyond. Um, You can even find something similar in some invertebrates. So this type of, of response, when something suddenly changes, in response to something in the environment is an absolute lifesaver and it it does all sorts of things to our body to make us fix the problem right here and right now you know most of the time we don't like change do we We like to bimble along pretty much enjoying ourselves as as we are but you suddenly see something out the corner of your eye or something jumps towards you you get that you feel you get that sense that feeling that pumped up feeling you're you're amped up and ready to fight or flight and 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 that's really very much a lifesaver the problem is all those hormones that are released and then they cascade through the body actually have some negative effects on us as well. Those negative effects are potentially quite serious negative effects. But, but of course, most of the time we don't, we don't see the effects of those um, hormones because we're not releasing them all the time. But what we see now is the problems of, of chronic stress. So this is not that a tiger's jumped out from behind a bush. It's that, you know, you've got a stacked up email inbox and the kids are running around outside and, and you've got 15 phone calls stacked up and you might miss the bus and, and interest rates are falling and you're not sure whether to remortgage your house or not and your fridge has gone wrong and you've lost the guarantee and you don't know whether to renew your insurance and your car needs filling up. You know, the, the modern world provides us with this tremendously rich palette of stresses and micro stresses and it's quite interesting to see that the language of medicine really has changed over over the last sort of 10 or 15 years you know you you look now at nhs websites for example and they're talking in in language that feels you know, it feels sort of more like sort of 10 years ago would have felt more like Glastonbury than kind of Harley Street. You know, they're talking about taking spa breaks or, you know, finding finding time to, to de-stress. It's all very focused on the fact that we live these very stressful lives. And consequently, we're always in this very low level fight or flight for, for something that's never going to happen. And, and we need to we need to address that. Actually, it's causing problems. We know it causes heart problems later in life. It's linked to all kinds of other things as well. And of course, it's only really now something we're starting to, to learn about. Because it's only now that we're seeing people who have, who have gone through this very modern life of being stressed, which is not to say that people weren't stressed in the past. Of course, there's nothing necessarily um, special about living a, a stress-filled modern life. It's just the modern world seems to provide so many more opportunities for constant low-level stress. And also, of course, it's something that we can become much more aware of now and, and do something about. Let's talk about a couple of ways then in which that's really intensified in the in the last probably decade let's say social media first of all um the rise of social media one thing that that has done for all the bad things that are said about you know twitter or whatever or facebook nowadays one thing that we might have thought was a good thing is that it has given us a much wider network of in inverted commas friends 
Yes, and we know that friends are good. There's all manner of, of studies that show just how good having a solid friendship network is. The interesting thing about social media and, and the thing that was almost slightly, it was <laughs> slightly annoying actually writing that chapter because because I wanted to come out with some sort of definitive point of, of social media is this or that. And it's not. It's much more complex than that. Our relationship with social media is evolving actually and changing all the time as social media does. But also different people seem to respond differently. So some people may have a very, very positive relationship with social media. It's a, an amazingly positive thing in their life. They get a great deal out of it. And I'm sure over the last few months, I mean, given the situations we've been living under over the last few months, social media has, has probably quite literally been a lifesaver for some people. Um, however, it seems that social media can also be incredibly damaging for some people too. And there's lots of studies that sort of show that people of certain mindsets or people that are suffering from depression already or are quite ruminative personalities um, can be very badly affected by social media. And, and I guess Yes, if we're talking it from an evolutionary perspective, um, people sometimes kill themselves as a consequence of interactions in a virtual world. And that is obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, extremely negative, right? It reduces your fitness to zero. So it is a very interesting thing that we've, we have created a world ourselves that is not real. It's a virtual world. It's a world that many people are now increasingly living in and spending more time in. And we still haven't really worked out the rules. And I think that's what's quite interesting. We're, we're almost applying real world rules to the virtual world, and that doesn't seem to work very well. And, you know, the other thing which I talk about in that chapter is the idea of the Dunbar number or whatever number you want to use. There seems to be some upper limit to the number of people that we can have within our friendship networks because of the limitations of our brain. You know, ultimately, the limitation seems to be the number of faces you can remember. And we can see that playing out in our lives quite frequently, you know, whether it's Christmas card lists or the number of people that work in particular companies or all sorts of other things. And, you know, we, we see it throughout history that it seems to come out that we like to be in certain group sizes. What we're not quite sure of is how that kind of evolved psychological um, thought process, how that interacts between the real world and the virtual world. And that's something that's quite interesting because there are various measures of this and various different studies that have been done. Done by himself came out with a number of about 135 to 150. Other studies have come out a bit higher at 400. There's one or two studies that have suggested that our limit's about 1,500. But many of us on virtual networks far exceed that. And not just in terms of people that, you know, occasionally we like their posts or whatever, but actually people we interact with fairly frequently. It's quite possible to end up interacting with a very large number of people online and then you've also got your real life your real life networks too um, and they're often quite separate so understanding how all of these things go together and how they influence us is very much a work in progress but I, I found it really interesting to see that it wasn't very much more than about six months I think after Facebook had launched and there were already studies coming out of the Netherlands looking at the effects of Facebook on, on young people for example uh, the influence of, of likes and sort of affirmation and looking at other people's lifestyle and all that sort of stuff on on these social networks. So it's, it's clear that, that from the beginning, we've been sort of wary of them. But of course, they're everywhere. You know, people are on Instagram and Twitter and, and Snapchat and Facebook and, and all manner of things that are coming up. Every time I look, there's some new platform that's trying to get a foothold. So understanding, I think, how we interact with those things and how they interact with our regular lives uh, or our, our real lives, our flesh lives, if you like, I think is, is very much a work in progress. And something that wouldn't have risen to the extent that it has without social media is, as you've already mentioned, fake news. What is it about our evolutionary makeup that makes us so susceptible to it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Sort of, um, I guess believing believing fake news is kind of an example of gullibility, and gullibility is a really, really useful trait, particularly in young children. Right? If young children don't believe what they're told, they're not going to survive very long. So we see young children developing. That, that, I mean, you can tell them that Father Christmas exists, and they do. And you know, I mean, obviously he does. But you know, the tooth fairy and so on. Children, children readily believe things if it's from a trusted adult. But what's interesting is that at a very young age, we also develop heuristics and and sort of processes that let us filter out people that are uh, perhaps lying but all sort of mixed in with that you've got things like um, the halo effect for example which is um, a sort of psychological structure where we tend to attribute good things to people who are attractive for example we, we think that they may be more generous or more intelligent we have no me- way of measuring that but we we have that thought and it, it's been argued that you can link that to um, sort of quite deep-rooted evolutionary mate choices the idea that we are more attracted to attractive people who generally are more symmetrically faced and that symmetry might be a reflection of being better able to deal with parasites or having a lower parasite burden in and in, in so on and you can find this in in animals as well so there's all kinds of little echoes i I quite enjoyed writing that chapter actually because it was quite an exploration of quite a few different sort of things that that may or may not have a part to play of course the other thing then is that we're a very social animal and we have evolved to have structures that that reinforce that sociality i guess language is is a good example of that but also things like confirmation bias so we're much more likely to believe good things about about our group and bad things about the others um, those are exactly the sorts of things that fake news absolutely preys on. So if you've got a sort of low level of gullibility, we tend to want to believe people. We tend to want to trust people. On top of that, if you're telling, you know, if you tell someone something they already kind of believe already, they're much more prone to believe it. If you then use the halo effect and dress all that up, and I mean, I guess you know, TV channels that seem to specialise in pumping out fairly questionable news, they look like TV channels that pump out proper news, right? <laughs> so we've got all of these things lumped together someone seems to be telling us the truth they look the part they seem confident they're all good things they're telling us what we already kind of want to hear those are the absolute perfect sort of evolutionary echoes for fake news to take off adding to that the fact that we've got a brain big enough and agile enough to have invented the internet which is the perfect way to seed these stories around and and you've, you've got almost a perfect storm um you know, fake news isn't new um there were examples of fake news sort of you know back at the beginning of the printing press and and further back actually but what we have now is just this this i guess it's it's a theme actually across the book actually it's this potency of the modern world this concentrated potency no longer is is fake news just this well i saw this pamphlet six months ago you know and then i read this other thing last week you can pick up your phone and you can read 15 stories before you've got out of bed you know it's that potency and concentration i think which is also very very important and i guess it's what we see in food it's what we see in other things as well so yeah, it's um, it, it's it's interesting that we we do seem to be particularly particularly prone to believing things that that aren't true, as long as they confirm to what we think might be true. Just to finish us off, then, I mean, you talk about a whole range of different sort of issues and and concerns in the book. So there's not really a what can we do about this sort of summing up answer for it. However, you know, beyond hoping the species survives for another 300,000 years and, <laughs> and catching up. Is there anything we could do to make ourselves, especially with the, the sort of modern age ones that we're talking about, social media, fake news, what can we do to make ourselves less susceptible? 
I think what we need to do really is just take a pause. And I suppose in some respects, you know, we're kind of slightly being forced to do that. But we need to start thinking in a more mature way, I think, about where we want to be going. What do we want to be doing? Um, lots of people, for example, at the moment are questioning their work life balance and the way that they they do work and and lots of people are being forced to work from home and suddenly discovering that they can do things in a different way and, and operate in a different way we need that mindset to look at these problems and understand that yeah we we can't blame evolution for these problems and we can't we can't evolve away from them you know there are echoes of our of our existence as an animal you know the fact that we are basically an evolved animal we can find those echoes in lots of aspects of our life but what we need to do is sort of own that and accept okay you know this is what's going to happen but maybe if we sit and think about it we can do things differently because that's that's really i guess the ultimate lesson is that we have the ultimate evolutionary echo right we've got this fabulous brain and it's our brain that gets us into most of these problems <laughs> and it's it's going to be our brain that gets us out of them you know we need that time to sit and think and the modern world has become so hectic and so kind of potent and concentrated i think that's that's one of the things we lack um the the other problem which is actually the, the last chapter of the book is that we don't have a very firm relationship with the future you know natural selection and evolution are very much present day events um and immediate things and and it's quite interesting that psychologically we don't seem to have got a very good grip on the future we don't we don't treat future us in the same way that we treat present day us, for example, we, we tend to devalue future us, but we can be trained out of that. Um, so there's a whole series of quite interesting experiments where people have sort of primed subjects to realize that, well, hang on, future you, that you're about to lump all this pain and suffering on to avoid it now, future you is actually you, you know, it's going to be the same person, you're going to have the same hopes and fears and so on. And, and that causes people to rethink. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I sort of didn't set out to write a sort of species self-help book, um, more of a sort of playful exploration of some of our evolutionary past but actually i think having an understanding of that could help in the long run for example there's a, a gambling therapy people i talk about um, addiction and sort of problem gambling in one of the chapters and and one of the treatments for that is actually to make people understand why they gamble in evolutionary terms to to understand about the importance of risk so you can be very risk averse your little mouse that hides away in your hole and never goes out to feed or mate you're not going to do very well on the other hand you can be a very brave and confident mouse that spends all your time outside your hole and you get eaten by a bird you know so you have to balance these things out and actually treating people and, and talking to people and, and making them understand that actually there are these choices, there are these evolutionary choices, you know, your brain is conspiring against you, there are these reward pathways, you know, that can help people to get a grip on their behavior a little bit too. So I think, you know, sometimes knowledge is power, right? Sometimes understanding why we are where we are can help us to, to think through the next step, which is very clearly where we are right now. So I've been talking to Adam Hart, we've been talking about his book, Unfit for Purpose, when Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.